Hey, I'm glad to see we filled up a little bit. This is the traditional low Sunday of the year because why? Spring break. Everybody's getting a head start on going on on trips and traveling and such. So sometimes this is a a little bit of a down Sunday, but I think we've got a good message this morning that everybody's going to enjoy. So um, uh, welcome. Glad you're here. Just a couple announcements. I don't think anybody's made announcements yet, have they? No. Okay, good deal. Uh, Monday Thursday service this Thursday, ironically, at 630. Uh, we'll be meeting over here in the event hall in the round, um, and they're going to adjust the sound and a couple of other problems that we had last year. So that's going to be there at 630 this coming Thursday. And then we need to uh, also start signing up for a couple of things that we have going on. We're going to have what is called Brunch Church on the 16th. Has anybody ever heard of such a thing? Anybody? A couple of people have heard about it. Brunch Church, what we're going to do is we're going to get together, have a brunch-type meal. Everybody pitches in and bring something. And we're going to teach during the meal time over here in the event hall. You'll be able to be a little more interactive in there. And it's just something different we wanted to try to build community. That's what this one series has been all about, is building community, making us one. We thought, this is a great opportunity to try something fun like this. I think it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, we can sit together as groups. We can we can worship together. We can hear the teaching together, ask questions together. I think it'll be a lot of fun, plus we'll have some good food as well. Also, the next Sunday after that is Widow's Harvest. Uh, need to sign up for that. This is a ministry where we take food to a local widow's ministry where we feed women and children quarterly. And so if you'd like to sign up for that, that is also online. All this is on journeychattanooga.com online, and you can sign up for any of these or sign up on the uh, tablets in the lobby. And finally, the Signal Mountain Group is going to be having an event the 14th at the Tannis's house. So please sign up for that. Ashley, raise your hand. Miss Ashley Tannis is heading that group up, and so if you're interested, live on Signal Mountain, or just like some of the folks that live up there, you can sign up for that group and participate. Uh, the Saudi Daisy group, we had our first meeting last week. Great success. Went out to eat together. Had a really good time. I know some of you weren't able to be there. So what I'd like to do after church, if you're interested in the Saudi Daisy group, or again, you don't have to live in Saudi Daisy. If that's just the people you hang out with live there, that's fine as well. Let's meet down front after the service for just a couple of minutes and let's see what we want to do next. We want to go out and eat again, go to someone's house. Who else is interested? Because we, I know we had some folks that missed out last week that really wanted to be there. So that's it for announcements. And we'll jump right into the teaching this morning. I promise to have you out here earlier than Mark. Is that a, is that a deal? Uh, yeah, don't ever say it. Leslie says it never works out. But yeah, I'm going to I'm going to give it my best effort here. I think we're we're off to a good start. But Mark is on vacation this weekend. I'm Scott. I'm the associate pastor. Um, I see lots of movement back here. Kidmo, you're dismissed. So I got that. I saw the kids getting anxious and moving. So I was hoping that wasn't adults already leaving, but okay. Uh, if you're a guest, we have Kidmo over here. This is a, this is our second through fifth grade ministry and it's designed just for kids those age. You can have a great time over there. If you're not comfortable going over there, you can also stay in here, but we have age appropriate teaching for the kids over there that they really enjoy. And we, we thank everyone that, that uh, participates and volunteers over there. It's a really great ministry, ministry for our kids, but yeah, let's jump right in. Here I'm, I'm glad Daniel read the scripture he read this morning. Somebody asked me, did you tell Daniel to pick that or whatever? I said, no, Daniel came up with something that impressed him on his own. And this scripture was talking about being what? Anxious. Well, we're going to join in in the story this morning. And the very first slide, it says, the Jews from the nation of Judah have been conquered and exiled to Babylon. 
I would say they were anxious. Would you? That's a great scripture, and I think it's going to fit because we're going to see what the what the um, God's people that lived in Judah and were exiled. We're going to see what they went through and what they and how they handled it. And some of them didn't handle it so well. So anxiety is going to be a big part of this. But the the current situation that we're going to start at is the Jews have been exiled. Now, there's lots of history going up to this. And why did this happen? I think that's a fair question, don't you? Is why why were they exiled? And God's chosen people became exiles because of the unrepentant sin shown in their nation. They had turned from God in order to pursue their own interests. Sounds like a familiar story, doesn't it? But this is where we find God's God's people as they've been exiled because Jeremiah, the prophet who our our um, teaching this morning is based on, is his the book called Jeremiah. He has been telling them and telling them and pleading with them that God is going to punish us if we don't repent. We need to repent. God says we need to do these things. We must do this. And so far, the people have ignored him. There's a lot of neat history in the book of Jeremiah, too. We're not going to go into that because that's not the focus of today's message necessarily. We'll touch on it a little bit. But there is everything from political intrigue to division, prophets fighting each other over ideas and division there. There's an assassination in it. There's people being exiled and replaced politically. It reads like a modern day drama with all that in it, with, with all the political intrigue, all the, the um, um, infighting and things. It sounds just like our society today. And that's an important part of what we need to look at is what we can learn from all this. But our first passage of scripture this morning is Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hoed out... out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So God has told us in this passage of Scripture here what has happened in the nation. That's the reason they're in exile. They have turned from God. And who do you think was most important in their lives? Self. They've turned from God and said, he said they committed two evils. They've forsaken me, forgotten all about me. And then they've made cisterns that are leaky. And what he's saying there is they've become self-reliant. And they don't have me as God. And it doesn't work that way. The only way you can have the living water, the Holy Spirit in your life, is to have a leak-proof cistern. And you can't have that without God. But they have tried. They have tried to replace God with everything they can think of, from political systems to leadership and all these things. We can get by without God. We're doing just fine. We're going to do these things. As a matter of fact, if you read through the background of this passage of Scripture, the prophets have said that Jeremiah is a false prophet. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's been claiming this nonsense for years. And look, what has God done? He's not punished us. He is just trying to draw attention to himself and his message. God has not done anything, and he is wrong. And that's the situation we find these people in right before they're exiled. They're ridiculing Jeremiah. Now, how do you think Jeremiah feels? Jeremiah is struggling. God is speaking to him and saying, Jeremiah, I have a message for my people. They need to repent Quit this evil they're doing and turn back to me. And you need to give them that message. Jeremiah goes, gives them that message. God has even told Jeremiah because of the impending exile, don't even marry Jeremiah. Don't take a bride. Don't get too involved in things because it's all going away. 
Jeremiah goes and does this, and what happens? Crickets from God. It, Jeremiah, as myself, if I think if I had that experience, I would be thinking, God's told me this in this time frame for a reason. It's getting ready to happen. How many of you have seen, there used to be, uh, you folks that live in Falling Water area will remember this, I think. There but Thomas Farms on the hill there on their property was a sign that Jesus is coming. You remember that? Jesus is coming soon. And it was a tattered, worn out, faded sign. It had been up so long. Now, I think that's the way the Jews in the kingdom of Judah were feeling. We've heard this. This message has faded away. It's not even relevant anymore. You keep saying it. But it hasn't happened. So, you know, we're just going to rely on ourselves. We, we don't think God has a problem with us. I think we're doing just fine. So that's where they found themselves. But finally, in Jeremiah 5, verses 25 through 29, uh, we start to see what has happened. Your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have kept good from you. For wicked men are found among my people. They lurk like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men like a cage full of birds. Their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in the deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so, but what will you do when the end comes? God is giving a last warning here. Here it is. You're going to be exiled and you're going to be exiled because of these things. And we're going to talk about this in modern text here at the end of the message, but I want us to look at what's going on here. He's talking about fowlers. I've never heard that term, but it was people that caught fowl and sold them for a living. You know, um, they would go out and catch wild game. I suppose some of them even raised fowl, but this is talking about those that would go out and catch wild, wild game and they would lie in wait to get that fowl and snatch it up. Well, that's exactly how the evil people were treating the other people in the nation of Israel and they were growing rich doing it. They were deceitful. You know, they were, they were capturing men. And what, what that means is they were taking advantage of people in order to benefit themselves and become rich and powerful. And God saw that and hated it. He said, they know no bounds in their deeds of evil. They judge with justice the cause, they judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless. Huh. We're kind of thinking that's just a modern day problem, don't we? The fatherless. How many of you think that's a problem in our nation that there are so many kids growing up in broken homes? Anybody that's gone through that, it's a, it's a hard thing. We've almost accepted as society that it's just going to happen. But even back in the book of Jeremiah in this time, before they were exiled, the fatherless, those were not being treated justly because they had no one to stand up for them. The cause of the fatherless. And God hated that evil. He said they, they don't judge with justice because they know they can take advantage of these people. And they take advantage of these people and they oppress them and become rich off the fatherless. And then they, they, define the, they do not defend the rights of the needy. How many people do you see really going back for the poor in Chattanooga today? I think, I think we have the same problem today. If you're, if you're in a certain class of society, and I'm a powerful person, about all I do with you is I use you. 
is I use you to make me more powerful. I'll say I'm going to do some things for you, but that makes people vote for me and it makes things happen for me. Same thing was happening in Jeremiah. They were not looking at the needs of the needy and helping them and going out and sharing the wealth. They've accumulated great wealth. And instead of sharing that wealth, they have made themselves more powerful and more wealthy and continue to oppress those that are in need. So the, the people were, of Judah were taking advantage of the needy and the fatherless, and there was no justice. There was no justice in the land. Those people didn't have the power to bring justice, so they were always taken advantage of. Well, let's look. Now that we're, we're seeing the, the picture of what was going on in the land of Judah, why God was angry with them, why they were getting exiled, who got exiled? This was a very interesting thing I did some research on as far as historical background. Um, this is Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 2. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. This is a very different scene than what we saw in Exodus when all of the Jews were in Egypt and all of them came back out of Egypt. This was the thing where Babylon has conquered Judah. Even though the people of Judah have gone through great lengths to make political alliances and alliances with other nations and things, the king of Babylon came and conquered them still. So they've been a conquered people. Now, when I hear that they're in exile, I think of anybody here watched the Ten Commandments last night, even a minute of it. It was actually on last night. Yeah, we got one, one back. I flipped through it, and the Ten Commandments was on. I always remember around Easter time every year, they show the Ten Commandments on TV. That's the picture we have of people that are exiled. They're enslaved. They're in another nation. They have no rights. It's not what was happening here with the people of Judah they took certain people away, brought them into the kingdom of Babylon, and set them up in their own little communities, kind of. Now, there is some debate whether some of them were slaves. They may have been, the people that served in agriculture and things like that, may have been in kind of a form of state slavery. But for the most part, they were deposited in pockets. That's not what we saw in the past when, when, when people got exiled. What did you try and do with them? You tried to disperse them and keep them from talking together. You didn't want them to come revolt against you or do anything like that. So you kept them all separated. That was not the way it worked in Babylon. And so what happened is, if you look at the second part of the verse, uh, King Jeconiah, these are the people that were taken into exile, were the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers. That's some of the people that were exiled. Now, why do you think they chose those people? It was their leadership and their infrastructure. That's the people that Babylon took. We don't care if you're a farmer. Stay over there. You're not a whole lot of use to this. They may have taken some to help with their farmlands and things and enslaved them. But they took the leadership out of Judah. They took the king. They took the queen. They took the craftsmen and metal workers. I, I imagine those people came in quite handy. Uh, some debate whether they were salaried or just given land or how they lived there. But that's the people that were taken away. The, priests, the people that were left were the elders of the exiles, the priests, the prophets, all the people whom, all the other people that were left there. Jeremiah was one of the ones that was left in Judah during this time. So we have people still living in Judah, and we have 
people living in Babylon in exile. So that's kind of where all this is going. Now, of course, the political side of this is you take those leaders out of Judah and you make them kind of puppet leaders or whatever in Babylon. Uh, you take them away so that they can't lead the people in revolt against you and that sort of thing. And there's a series of kings and things in Judah that went on that uh, didn't work out so well. Some of them reigned as little as, I think it was, was it three years? I think was one reign. Uh, I don't remember the exact numbers there, but there were short-term kings in Judah because it was such turmoil there. Why? Because of the anxiety. You know, our leadership is gone, and we're just trying to, uh, one of the kings was a 21-year-old ruler. He was 21 years old. How do you think he fared in the world of politics? Not very well. He was simply an instrument of the king of Babylon, and the people hated him for that. So there was all of this, this, these things going on. But that's how we got that we've come to the situation that God's people were left leaderless and hopeless for 70 years. Why? Because they were relying on themselves. They turned away from God. So God had been warning them that this was going to happen. Your land's going to be conquered. Conquered. You're going to be sent into exile. And there's some left. Now, now, do you think they turned to Jeremiah and said, wow, you were right. Let's get right. No, they just kept doing the same thing they were doing. And so they were left leaderless and hopeless for 70 years. I'm sure that that brought a lot of anxiety. I think that brought, do you think that brought some regret on some people's parts that they didn't listen to start with? You know, maybe, maybe not. I mean, people were content to believe in themselves. Maybe they think God wouldn't have helped them anyway. I think that would be what would happen today is they would still ignore the message of God. But look at verse 20 or chapter 29, verse 10. It says, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise to bring you back to this place. So God's told them you're going to be there. You're going to be there for a period of 70 years. I told you it was going to happen. God did exactly what he said he was going to do. Exactly what he was having uh, brought forth through the prophet Jeremiah. He told him these things. They came to pass. And now he's saying 70 years. You're there. And so what was God's plan for his people while they were in exile? I think God, when he makes a move of any sort, do you think he has a plan? I do. I think there's a plan. I think we often don't see it. I think things happen in our lives. And we think, God, why did you do that? Um, one of the next, uh, I think one of our next brews and views topics, was that the one, Greg? I think, Greg, was that the one where why did bad things happen to good people or something of that nature? That was one of our topics that we're going to do in that, in that group study is why do bad things happen to good things? Maybe they're not bad things. Maybe there are things that God has a different purpose for that we're not seeing. So that's one of the, one of the lines I'm sure we'll look at there. But, but the people of Judah are now in exile. But why? Why did God do this to these people? That would be my question. I'm already, I'm already just feeling horrible that God says I'm going to be in exile for 70 years. Your nation is not going to be. This is not going away. You're going to be here. I would be anxious about what happens. How's the Babylonian king going to treat us? Is he going to come and take the rest of us out of Judah? Uh, if I'm in Babylon, is he going to execute us? Or are we going to be, what are we going to have? And all these things going on. But God had a plan. And this is Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, behold houses or build houses and live in them. 
Plant gardens and eat the produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare will find your welfare. That is an odd passage of scripture to me. God has exiled these folks. He's taken them away. And normally, as we look historically at the people of Jews, God's told them not to marry, certainly don't marry anybody in Babylon or any, anywhere outside of, of your own people. And here God's saying, We've got to make sure that the remnant of people doesn't go away. We want you to marry. We want you to settle down there. We want you to build homes. God said, you're going to be there. But here's what I want you to do is I want you to seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and to pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find welfare. I don't know about you, but if somebody came in, snatched me up from my home and took me to another city far away, and God says, hey, settle down there and make the best of it and be sure and pray that things go well for them. How many of y'all are going to, that is not human nature. That has to be something that God is, is trying to do something extraordinary with these people because that is not the thought I'm going to have. My thought is, you know, I want to increase myself. But what do you want against those people that have, have taken you into exile? You want revenge, don't you? You want them to not prosper as you prosper. You know, you want things to happen to them. Again, going back to the, when they were exiled in Egypt, you want God to send plagues against that leadership. You don't want to pray for Egypt. You want them to be in such bad shape that they finally tell you, please leave, go and take whatever you want with you. Just leave us alone. That was not the case here. God told them, settle down. And pray for that city. God tells his people to settle down and write it out for the next 70 years. He wants them to be a positive influence on those around them. That was the purpose. God sent these people in somewhat to be evangelists. And to let the people know who the true God is. And to work with them for the good of the city. Now, I think there's there's something, and this is where I've got a break in the message. We're going to jump forward to modern times. But this is, this is my transition point. I want you to think about this. Today, we seem to think that we're many in our country, even around the world, that we are so enlightened that we don't need God anymore. Do you all feel that way? Do you feel that from society as general? We're so enlightened. We're doing so well. We know what to do with everything. We don't need God. And I would ask, if we are so enlightened, why do we still have a problem with fatherless and the needy? Hmm? If we're so smart and we know so much what needs to be done, why do we have so many needy people? And why do we have so many broken homes and children growing up without direction? It really seems like maybe we haven't learned anything in like 2,500 years, doesn't it? It seems like we are struggling with the exact same thing today that the people in Judah were struggling with back in this time before they were exiled. We oppress the needy. We don't give justice to certain people based on your ethnic origin or whatever. And we're doing the same thing today. And that's where the transition point is today. I want to look and see what God was trying to teach the children of Israel, those that are that were in the kingdom of Judah, that were exiled, what he was teaching them. And apply it to what we know we need to do today in our own communities. 
Do you think that we have problems in our community? Right here, Red Bank, Chattanooga, Saudi Daisy, Hickson, Highway 50. Do you think we have problems? What problems do we have? Crime, what else? Homeless, what else? Hunger, substance abuse. Okay, let's just tackle those four. Is that enough for this morning? (laughs) The what? Jobless? Yeah, jobless or underemployed, I think, is another thing. That we have people that have jobs that they can't make enough money at to live on. So look at those five problems that we have right here in our area. We as a church should be working in those areas where we can. Do you all agree? If there's something we can do, we should be doing it. I don't think the commands that God gave his children that were living in Judah and they were exiled, I don't think they're any different today. We are commanded to do good works. Commanded to do good works. Look at this verse from Matthew chapter 5. It says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may, be, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We're commanded to do that. It says, You are the light of the world. And you are to do this and not hide that light because people need to see it because it gives glory to God the Father. What's the church known for today? Divisiveness. What else? Anything else? Oppression. Oppression. Sexual abuse. We've seen that in, in, in churches, in, in the Catholic Church and in Protestant Church, in the Baptist circles now has come out that there's been sexual abuse. Boy, that's really a great light to shine, isn't it? Yeah. Getting rich. How many of you have ever seen a TV preacher that you thought was rich? <laughs> yeah, I don't. Mark and I have missed out on this gig. Y'all are going to have to help us out here. I don't know what you have to do. You have to smile real big and tell you everything you want to hear. I don't know what it is. But yeah, we're not there. But yeah, there's, those are the things. Do you ever hear the church getting credit for the good it does? I seldom see that. Very seldom. You know, very seldom do you see that. Uh, one of the things that I love to see is people saying that the church, you're just in it to get wealthy, which obviously most churches are not. Most churches are small. Most churches in the United States today are as smaller, smaller than our congregation. Okay. Do you think they're rich? Absolutely not. But people now want to say, well, they should take their tax exempt, exempt status away. Well, fine. Let's do that. And then when the church goes and serves in disaster relief like Ken does, they should all get paid. The churches should get paid. Everybody, right, Ken? Is that only fair? You know, if you're going and helping out, how often do you see in the news that, well, today in World News Tonight, we want to report on the Baptist missionaries that went and served in South Florida rebuilding homes. You ever seen that? Never, never. So just because you don't see the churches being the light on the hill, I'll guarantee you, and Ken will testify to this, those people down there that they're serving, they see you as light, don't they? They absolutely see. And what? And who's it glorifying? The Father. And people are coming to know God through that work. And that's what we are missing out on so much as a church and as a people that we're not doing that. Now, why did God create us? We're told we were created to do good works. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, do you think you can live a fulfilled Christian life if you're not doing any kind of, any kind of good works? We've gotten that wrong. And I think that may be an American problem more so than a worldwide church problem. We have somehow gotten the idea that church was about coming for your Sunday morning lecture and you learn some things. And then you come back and you get lectured and you learn some more. We've taken an academic approach to church instead of a life approach to church. Instead of an approach where I am not fulfilled as a Christian until I'm out serving and doing good things and helping and doing the things that God commands me. To come and just hear about it isn't enough. We need to do something about it. And there's a multitude of ways, which we'll talk about in a minute. But we were created to do that. If you're not fulfilling the, pre, the purpose you're created for, no wonder we have such depression and substance abuse and things in the United States. If you're not fulfilling what God has for you to do, you can't be happy. You can't be fulfilled. You're not living the life that God has for you. And that life, that doesn't mean that it's going to be problem free. It doesn't mean that no bad things are ever going to happen. But it means God is with you. God is working through you. And you're doing things for the community because you were created to do good works. We're to do these works in order to honor God and not to be recognized by men. Colossians 3 tells us, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the, as for the Lord and not for men. Ooh, that one can get into some fun stuff. Um, how many of you enjoy going to work every day? Oh, we got a couple. Good for you. You folks that do do things. Yeah, Dylan, you guys that you guys that do things that you love and it's fulfilling to you, and you ain't got it's a great place to be. Now, is work always fun? Nah. <laughs> not not there's even if you enjoy what you're doing, there's days that it's just like, man, this just wasn't a good day. But you have to remember you're working for God. You're not working for that employer. You're not working for that boss. You're working for God. And that is much easier said than done. Like, that is something we all have to work at. But now, how does that work in the sphere of community to do these things for God? Well, I will tell you, I have become somewhat dis- disillusioned with the way this, this works in Chattanooga. Okay? Somewhat disillusioned with it. All right? If you were to see a church serving in Chattanooga... When would it be? Can anybody tell me the number one place you would see a church serving that you might hear about it? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving community meals. You know, it is wonderful that people turn out to do that. Okay? It's great that they turn out to do that. You know, I don't know what the homeless and hungry do the other 364 days a year that we're not out there helping them out. Because obviously it's something that is so important to us. Do you realize there's a waiting list for most community meals during Thanksgiving, you have to get on the waiting list. And people won't, and I hate to say this, but it's so true. People want to be seen as the smiling Christian in line there, serving the poor homeless people and showing what we're doing. You know what? If we were doing the right things, we would never need a TV camera, would we? Those homeless people would be saying, the Christians in this community, they take such good care of us. We never go hungry. We know where to go for a meal. They even try and help us get jobs. They clothe us. They teach our children. They help us in any way they can. But instead, it's turned into a photo op. The most disappointed I have ever been 
is when we were working with Kingdom Partners on racial reconciliation in what? That was probably in 2019, 2024, pre-COVID. We had a great thing going. We had people, I still have relationships this day of African-American pastors that I met during that time that I would have never met if we had not gotten together. And we still share it. Still go to lunch together. Do these, uh, uh, Mark mentioned last week, Troy Brandt's mother. Troy is one of the guys that we met during this. Great man of God. Great pastor. Wanted us to pray for his mom. Those are the kind of things we were trying to accomplish. It was great. And then one day we said, okay, here's what we're going to do. The mayor has invited us to come out. He's going to have a, a meeting and where he's going to invite the pastors that have been getting together and stuff. And we're going to include this group that's been meeting on racial reconciliation. We're going to have a meeting downtown at the Bessie Smith Hall. And we're going to talk about what we need in the next, in the next uh, police administration that we have. Oh, my goodness. There are people that came out of the woodwork for that meeting. And they were pastors. They came from everywhere. Every event that was going on during that time, if it had enough publicity, there were pastors that had never met any of the group that had been working on it. They came in and acted like, yes, I'm a big part of this. I would like for you to see what a big part of it. Mr. Mayor, I would like for you to see me and recognize me as I come in. And I'm going to come in and tell you how important I am. And I would like to sit. Remember when Jesus talked about who got to sit at the head table? Oh, there were so many competing for the head table there wanting to do that. And not to say that they were all ill-intended, but it just showed something that's wrong in our churches. That there is absolutely nothing wrong. And Mark and I are 100% guilty of this. We don't publicize Journey Church enough sometimes. We're bad about that. You know why? Mark and I both have a strong marketing streak in us. And we don't want to be the churches out here that's just doing it to get our name known. We want to be authentic. And we honestly haven't figured out sometimes where that line is and how to balance that, that people know about the good things we're doing. So all of y'all are our missionaries for this church. You're to go out and invite, let people know we are authentic. We're not doing that. We're not the people that advertise on the radio and, and have all these big events and go out and show you what we're doing. We're doing the things behind the scenes. We're feeding widows. We're doing that thing. We're doing widows' harvest. Ken's out. His group's doing projects in town. I'm working with the police department. Uh, there's people working with hospitals and children. And we're doing all these things and not a word about it. Because we want to be truly seen as that light. You know, I, I think what happens is there is a real difference in being that light, that city on the hill versus that light. Or somebody standing down here at the base of the hill from your own group shining the spotlight on you. Say, oh, look, there they are. Shine that spotlight up there on us. Yeah, we're doing a lot of good. If we're doing a lot of good, people will know. And I will guarantee there are people that know. People at the Red Bank Food Bank know who we are. They know we help. They know Ken's heart and what he's doing over here at the Red Bank Food Pantry. They know our churches. They know these things because we're working in the community. And not, not to be given awards and accolades and being told how good we're doing because it's the right thing to do for our community. And we need to continue to do those things. We've got, there's a group that is unique in this area to me is, is um, Red Bank Cumberland Presbyterian, Red Bank Methodist, the Mission, uh, all these churches, these pastors, Ken and Al and Adam and Mark and myself, we want to work together to see good for our community. Do y'all know how unique that is when we talk about that? Churches don't do that. You know why? 
somebody might come to your church that I wanted to come to my church. If I expose you to these, they might like your style of worship better. They might like your youth pastor better. And it becomes a competition. And I have been so encouraged in ministry. That's one of the most encouraging things in the last 10 years or so I have experienced is to see these men of God willing to work together for the good of our community. With no credit taken, it's not about building my congregation. I don't have to have my name out here on the program so you know who I am. It's just people that love each other and love the Lord working together. And I think we are a part of something really unique. And I think we're a part of something that God's going to grow. How many of y'all agree with that? If our heart's in it for the right reasons, I think God's going to grow this ministry for us. Uh, now look at Matthew 25, 40. It says, And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these brothers, you did it for me. Wow. Isn't that enough? Isn't that enough? Reason to do something for those that are less fortunate, the fatherless, the needy, uh, the substance abusers, the underemployed, whatever those things are that we've identified in our community, to be recognized as helping these people, these people that need some kind of assistance in their life, and we can do that and do it in the name of God. It's okay. There's all kinds of programs in town. We've had uh, uh, folks from one of the rehab groups visit us occasionally. Man, love to have those folks come in and fellowship with us, worship with us. It is good, and we can partner with those people. We don't have to compete with them. You know, somewhere along the lines, and I don't know where it is, we as Christians got the idea that the only kind of ministry we could do was if it was 100% based out of our church. Y'all experienced that? We've got a group over here feeding the homeless, okay? It's a secular group. Who cares? Go over there and help because you're supposed to be looking at the end result of helping the needy. Not whether it's affiliated with your church or another church or things, or we can't partner with that church because they do so-and-so. So we're going to ignore the needy, and then we're going to try and get our own program going. No, that's not the way the community of God is supposed to work together. We're supposed to do this. And it says we will be rich in good works by being generous and sharing our wealth. That sounds good, doesn't it? If we're going to do these things, if we'll share. Now, I will tell you, anybody, we're an open book here. You can look at our financial records. There's not a lot of wealth right now to share, okay? That's, that's just a fact of the matter. We're a small congregation. One of the reasons, and y'all will hear more about this, is we're looking for a place to move to. We don't feel we're being good financial stewards because we think too much is going to budget for basically what is overhead and things that we would like to turn back into our community. That's the reason we'd like to we'd like to have a lower rent payment to do those things. We'd like to find a place that suits us a little better. The problems we have in kids ministry over here because of the the loudness and things. Do you know why that's a concern for some of us? Does anybody know what's really behind some of that? You may not know if you don't serve in kids. Adults, you know, when you get to be a certain point in the adults, the noise and the stuff can be a problem getting volunteers. It can get a little wild. Kids are wild or whatever. But do you know who really suffers from that? We have kids. We have kids, some of them are on the autism spectrum somewhere. And you know what? That destroys their morning sometimes. They can't stand it. They can't stand all the motion, all the noise, all the crosstalk from other classrooms and stuff. And so why do we look for a better facility? To serve somebody that we think God wants us to serve. We have had and still have a lot of kids with special needs. And I would say... You guys have stepped up beyond measure when we've had those. And even if it comes to working one-on-one with that child so that their parents can come in here and worship 
And that child gets something that's fulfilling to them over in Kidmo or in the primary class or wherever it may be. That's part of what we do as a church. It's just reaching out to those in need. But listen to this from 1 Timothy. It says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Oh, man, don't you want what's truly life? Don't you want to do what's life-giving? Have you ever done activities you thought were just drained you of all life? (laughs) Even sometimes in ministry that happens, if it's not a good fit for us. There are things that I'm not a good fit for. And I've learned those things. And I've learned to say no to some things that I know don't fit me. They don't fit the way God has made me. And that's not to make excuses, but that's just to say, I know where God can use me. And I've, I've sought those. The problem is, when you start saying that's not fulfilling or whatever, and you don't do anything about it and just say, well, I can't serve. And you don't go out and look for those things. I'll guarantee you that God has a door open for everyone here this morning if they'll just look for it. If you'll look for an opportunity to serve, you'll have that. But it says, if we will do good and be rich in good works and be generous and ready to share, storing up this, this foundation we're building. We're building this foundation. You know, we're talking a lot about cities and foundations and buildings and hills and all that kind of stuff. I can relate to that. That's, that's kind of the language I speak. We're building up a foundation for all time if we do these good works, these things that we need to do. And now finally, as I, as I'm starting to close up here. And I promise I'm going to do it this time. Y'all hear, you, you make fun of me. Or I promise I'm going to get it. So I'm going to start closing up here. But as a faith community... We should be encouraging each other to do these good works. The, the rest of the world out here is oblivious to us as a church, honestly. They're not going to come out and say churches, you, unless it's a slam saying you churches don't do anything but pay your pastors big money. Not true. So we're not going to get encouragement from society in general. So we need to encourage each other to be doing these good works, to help each, each one of us identify areas where we can serve, things that we can do. Do you know what's behind the idea of our community groups? We can encourage each other. How about that? We can get together, get to know each other as people, have fun, have fellowship, have a meal. And when you know something about somebody, it's a lot easier to help them find a ministry place they might fit too, isn't it? You know, one of the things that that rotates around here, and this is how I got my start in ministry, was we were doing car shows. There are people in our congregation, some of them here, some of them aren't here today, that are interested in that sort of ministry. Well, if I get to know you, I don't know that till I get to know you, though, right? I don't know what each one of you, all your hobbies are, all your interests are, the things that you really like to serve. But if you get in a smaller community and you start talking to each other and you say, oh, man, yeah, I love to do this. I love to do that. I'd like to use my love of this to influence people for Christ. Man, that's where we start hitting on all cylinders as a church is when, when we as a people get together and we, we start fellowshipping together and we start encouraging each other to do this good work. And... Hebrews 10.24 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Stir up. Man, I like that term. Get it, get it stirred up. Ken back here is my big stirrer. If there's anything going on, Ken is stirring it up. It may not always be in a good way, necessarily, but Ken is a stirrer, man. Where he goes, he, he touches people. He stirs it up. And 
that's what we need sometimes. We need people to encourage and stir us up, get us, get us up off the mark we're on and, and set our sights on God and the things that we can build a foundation for and the kingdom that we're responsible for, for carrying out here on the earth. You know, get stirred up for those good works. And finally, we are to look out for those who are oppressed and elevate their voices in our community. Oh, my. If we could, as a church, accomplish even a little of that in those areas, those people that were oppressed we were talking about, the, the fatherless, the homeless, the underemployed, the substance abuse victims, if we could just have a little bit of encouragement in their lives. Do you know how much that means to people that never get encouragement? That never hear a kind word or told how worthless they are? You brought all these things on yourself? That may be true. But do you think that elevates them up out of what they've done by telling them what they already know? Absolutely not. We need to be there for people. And finally, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they can't repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Wow. Do it for people that can give you nothing in return. Wow, that's a foreign concept these days to some extent, isn't it? Well, I'll do this for you, but how's it going to make me look? Or our church will participate in that, but when you have the program, will we be the first or third church listed on the program? I got to, you know, if I'm going to invest this in your program, I need to be first. And then my goodness, when you get to talking about city leaders, it's like, well, do you think your folks in your church will vote for me if, if, if we do this partnership with you and things like that? And it just gives you such a distaste for all of this. But if we're doing it out of pureness of heart and we're looking out for these people and we're helping them in whatever way. And there are so many. And here's the thing, I think, and I don't know how best to express it, but you don't have a ministry that directly affects the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the homeless, etc. You don't have to be involved in ministry, but all of the ministry you're involved in touches those areas because those people are everywhere. Does that make sense? Whatever ministry you're involved in is probably going to touch these people because they're everywhere. There are people that are underemployed. There are people that came from broken homes. There are people living in broken homes. There's children in broken homes. There's children that, that have, have um, problems with autism and things like that that they need your help to work through. There's substance abusers. There are all of these things. You know, that was one of the reasons I came out of a background where I was doing work with substance abuse folks and things like that. And do you know what? That has helped me now that God has pointed me in the direction of being a chaplain for law enforcement because I can help those officers know what's going on on the other side. You know? Because officers get jaded because all you see is problems. All you see is problems. And I try and tell them that we can be the solution. We want to be the solution. What would it look like? If all these things that I'm sharing here this morning, if all of our local police departments became involved in that too, what would that look like? What if we got a bunch of Christians on the police force and they started saying, hey, I noticed when we came out on that call to your house the other day, your kids look like they needed a new coat. Can I buy you a coat? Wow. What would that do? What would that do if God started using his people in all these places? And that's what I'm saying. It doesn't have to be you go down and sign up to stand at the line and put food on a homeless person's plate. There's so many ways you can help. There's so many different things you can do. And God has prepared each of us uniquely to do those things. I always refer back to this. And this has been my closing point. And it's kind of a funny one. Y'all, y'all that grew up in church. How many grew up in church? Yeah. 
What was the ultimate position? And I don't think it was pastor in my experience. What was the ultimate position that you could hold as a Christian to do in a church? Missionary. How many of y'all wanted to be a missionary? Nobody. Why? Because God sends you off to this God forsaken land. They don't speak English. You got to learn another language. They eat bugs and twigs and rats and oh, God, please do not send me to those people. How many of you was that your prayer? Don't send me, God. Don't call me to be a missionary. I do not want to go there. No, I have seen how those people live. I like my air conditioning in my Mountain Dew. I don't want to go there. But that's what we got because we weren't looking in the right places. Do you think God, how many of those missionaries do you think are miserable? I dare say not on one of them if they're called to be there. They are. They wouldn't trade their lives for anything in the world because they're in right smack in the middle of God's will doing what they need to do for people that need to hear about him. I think each of us has that same ministry here in Chattanooga, Red Bank, Hicks, and Saudi Daisy, Highway 58, Udawah, wherever you live. Even you folks in North Georgia, we got a few of those. I think wherever you live, there's a ministry you can get plugged into that helps the community you live in. And I think that's what God is calling us as pastors to tell you. He's telling other pastors to tell that to their congregations. He's telling us as pastors to work together. That really sounds like God wants to do something to me. I have never experienced that in my life in in the years of ministry where I have seen pastors willing to get together and do these things. I think it's a move of God. I think it's a move of God in our city. And I think it's something we need to be paying attention to. As we move forward as a church, as we said, our... Our, our, our future is uncertain as far as what building we'll meet in, but our future is certain, I think, in the direction God's pushing us. Y'all agree with that? God's putting us towards a purpose, I think. I think it's a great thing. And so just be praying for those things. Be praying for our groups. Be praying for all the, the things that we're doing, you're seeing come together. They're all for these purposes. This is just one of the purposes that God has for us, but it's a big one to be involved in our communities. And I want you to pray about that as we close. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all you do for us, Lord. Ah, Man, such good stuff you've given us today, Lord. Such practical things that we can do as Christians, that we can honor you by serving those around us, God. We get to go and help people that, that need us, that need desperately your touch in their lives, God. And we get to go and have the privilege of being the ones you use as a vessel to do that. We can go anywhere here and help these people that we've mentioned this morning, God. All these different areas, God. We can go and give them that touch that they need, and you will be glorified. We were created for this. We're commanded to do it, God. Just help us to find our path in these areas, God. Sometimes that's our biggest thing is finding the fit, God, where we where we need to be in ministry. I just pray you'll continue to strengthen our church in this and all the churches around us, Lord, that are looking at doing these very same things, God. He will bless us as pastors and leaders. You'll bless us as members of the congregation. You will bless this entire city throughout the work we do, God. And we just pray all these wonderful things in your name. Amen.